Hello, and welcome to The Workflow Show, where we provide some workflow therapy and discuss development, deployment, and maintenance of secure media asset management solutions. I'm Jason Whetstone, Senior Workflow Engineer and Developer at Chesapeake Systems. And I'm Ben Kilberg, Senior Solutions Architect. We have a fantastic discussion today about embracing evolution, keeping an open mind, and understanding that we are never really done learning. But before we get to that, we have a few quick things to ask of you, our listeners. First, you can reach out to us directly with questions and thoughts on anything we cover today at workflowshow at chesso.com. Second, you have sought us out to better understand the secrets of media production technology. And we, therefore, Ben and I, and the shadowy figures that stand behind us, require that in return you share some of your darkest secrets with us. <laughs> We just want to know how you found our show and get to know you better. So again, email workflowshow at chessa.com or at chessapro on Twitter or carrier pigeon if you're feeling like a shepherd. Lastly, you will be pleased to learn that we workflow therapists are hard at work to produce content for you on a more frequent basis. So please subscribe to the podcast and please annoy all your friends and coworkers by insisting that they do as well. All right, so now we got that out of the way. So now joining us today, technologist and futurist Michael Cioni of Frame.io. Hey, Michael. Hi, how's it going? It's going pretty well. So today we would love to talk to you about uh, editing innovation and the cloud and workflows and the impact on the state of the industry. But I want to start with something that I know you're very passionate about. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the relationship between technology, the tools that we use, and creativity, the force that drives original ideation. Yeah, you know, it's a really great subject because what I learned when I was younger, when I was in school, is that the idea that um, we are this, you know, these human beings with these brains that have these two different lobes and you're told that you're either left-brained or right-brained, which is to suggest that either math and science comes naturally to you or language and music and art comes naturally to you. And while it's true that when you have an advantage over being either more dependent on left or right brain, certain things come easier. But I believe what we have done, and I was guilty of this as a child, is I started to use it as a crutch. And I started to make excuses for not being experienced or good or uh, you know, ex- uh, expressive with math and science, because that didn't come easy to me. And so instead of giving mm-hmm. it more time that it needed to mature, I started to say, well, I'll just do the things that come easy to me and then qualify myself as an artist and then say, well, there's there's mathematics peoples out there and they can do that part for me. I believe that's a fallacy because I believe that the idea of being creative and technical in our industry, our industry is innately complex in technology. There is no way to completely separate art from tech. And I actually don't believe that's a new concept. I think it feels new because we've digitized so many things so rapidly. But there was so much technology in the creation and mining and and development of paints and things like that. That was technology of the age. And so being able to get cool colors like blues and greens were harder to come up with because blue is not as prevalent in nature. And so it was harder to generate powders and paints and pastes that could create these turquoise colors that we generally don't see in a lot of plant life. 
life. And so like there was technology about that, right? And of course, Absolutely. there's technology in the art when you think about hieroglyphics, which is a extremely artistic and technically uh, intense process of, of, of carving out these bricks and stones and walls. Like art and tech is not a new relationship. But I feel you have to understand the medium that you're working with, right? Right. Yeah. And so I, I think in the future, if you're thinking about how do you want to rise up and become an extremely unique and independent person inside of our industry, it means you have to start thinking about equal parts, creativity and technology. You got to look at them as equal and whatever comes naturally to you. Good for you. Hmm. But it means it's time to spend more time on the parts that don't come as easy because those are the parts that you're going to end up being unsure about. You're going to create some anxiety about those areas and you're going to have to rely on people that you may not fully trust innately. Hmm. And that's, those, are, those are things that all result in the most expensive element of making a movie and that is compromise. That's the most expensive thing. Money holds no candle to the cost of compromising. That's what an mm. artist fears the most. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we think the hardest thing to make a movie is the money. It's not. It's to make a compromise because creatively, you'll never live that down. Financially, you'll probably be fine. Mm-hmm. You'll work your way out of that hole. But but creatively, it'll eat at you for your whole life. Well That's said. why we have to think yeah, about very well said. fearing. We need to think about living in those two spaces and giving them equal credence. Awesome. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, Jason and I are both musicians, so I, I think we both had the formative experience of learning the uh, canvas, as it were, and um, having that being part of our formal upbringing, and that's really kind of what catapulted both of us into post-production, for sure. Yeah, and I, I play the accordion, so that is an extraordinarily technological instrument. <laughs> it's like <laughs> carrying an organ, or, you know, a portable organ around. It's really something. Um, and when you uh, when you actually take the two halves of it apart and study how they work, oh yeah, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> it's kind of mm-hmm. crazy that that's all happening while you're moving it around, and you know, if, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's talk a little bit about Michael, what you're doing now with workflow in the cloud, and that seems to be a really, uh, especially right now in, in 2020, it seems to be like right at the forefront of production. So let's talk about that a little bit. Like, how have things changed, you know, recently? Because I feel like we've been sort of, you know, talking about this change moving into the cloud and like, you know, moving content into the cloud and like moving workflows into the cloud and just ramped up really quickly in the last six months. Well, you know, there's a phrase that says luck favors the prepared. And so the important Mm. element of that concept is that we have to understand that so many things that become sure things are based on triangulation. I think when people come across an idea or a concept or a potential, if there's one data point, that's when a lot of us feel that anxiety of, should I jump in this direction? Should this be what I do? But the fact of the matter is, like um, detectives will say there's no such thing as coincidences, right? When you have several things all confirming each other and pointing to the same place, we call that a clue, right? <laughs> and what we need to think about is when you're talking about the cloud, um, COVID is not the jump to the cloud. It's actually one component of many things that are contributing to the cloud. It just happens to be the one that makes the New York Times above the fold every day, right? So it's easy to identify, but it's actually one clue inside of a series of things that we can triangulate. For example, we're looking at the, we're on the precipice of 5G. 
which was in process long before there was fear of a health crisis, right? 5G was on schedule and moving at rapid rate. We've got the development of the OTT platform where we have a completely new way of distributing content in video. We know that when we think about how the movie studios have changed their processes and policies about how they're collaborating and the fact we have distributed studios, LA is no longer the single epicenter of making productions. It's becoming more distributed. Those things are all predating a health crisis. And so when we look at the triangulation of those things and the speed that we expect to work, and we think of the development of the iOS platform and the Android platform with all these ways to integrate, moving everything in production to the cloud just seems like it's a good way to assume by triangulation, this is the right move. That's ultimately what brought me to Frame.io is I wanted to work mm. with people that had their eye on the prize for a future of total virtualization. I find it very unlikely that anyone will disagree with the idea that we are going to be a fully distributed and virtualized society, let alone an industry of motion picture and entertainment. No one's probably going to argue with you in that. The arguments are going to be how soon, how fast, and maybe some of the small details about like, will there be theaters or will it all be home theater? Th those are maybe up for debate a little bit. But Overall, everybody agrees that we're going to go virtual. So what I wanted to do is work with a team who's already past the starting line because some companies mm -hmm. have only just are just starting this process. Others are way into it right. and some are, are, are falling dangerously behind. It kind of just depends on what your company does or where it comes from. And as we move into the future, if there's one thing that I can be pretty sure of is that if your industry doesn't have a virtualized plan for its future, it probably has no future, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Now, that can be easy to say with like things like video and data. That's pretty easy. Uh, cameras, stuff like that starts to fit. But think about things like manufacturing and think about things like medicine and stuff like that. That's a way harder, bigger jump to figure out how to virtualize those types of industries. And I'm not in those industries. Uh, and there's going to have to be some smart leaders in that sector to help figure that out. In a way, we have it easy because we already made a digital transition. Um, and we're already pretty experienced with that. And so now we're just taking it into a cloud iteration of digital. Uh, but some industries have a longer way to go. So we have to figure that out. But that's why Frame.io became the perfect home for me. This is a team of great engineers and great leadership and great minds. The CEO, Emery Wells, identified so many of these touch points that now seem pretty obvious. In fact, a lot of my friends say, wow, when you went to Frame.io, it's almost as if you predicted what was happening with the pandemic. And the answer goes back to what I said a moment ago. Luck favors the prepared. And that's, that's exactly what happens if you follow that logic. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like that might have been the thing that prompted you to go to Frame.io. You've worked on some pretty amazing projects at LightIron and Panavision. So was that kind of what led you to Frame.io? Was that seeing that sort of uh, future coming in and uh, that preparedness? Yeah, you know, I come from a generation in which uh, it's, and I'm not the only generation, but I belong to a micro generation that's sort of like zillennials, sort of halfway between millennial and Gen X. <laughs> and this small generation, the Kurt Cobain generation, I guess you could say, is this group of people that um, essentially we really are kind of stuck between a previous generation that held on to jobs for a long time. And the generations after us tend to switch many jobs, many careers even. And we're sort of in that middle space. Yeah. 
And uh, it, it kind of might explain if you if you're born in some of those years and what I said resonates with you, you might be nodding your head saying, yeah, I kind of fit in that space. <laughs> or you're like, no, I, I kind of want to have <laughs> a long run. And other people are like, I can't work somewhere for more than three years. That seems like an eternity to some people. That's fine. None of these are the wrong approach. They're just different perspectives. My perspective is my clock happens to be about five years. Now, I didn't realize this until the alarm clock went off every five years, several five-year iterations. So you got right. to take some trips around the sun to start doing the math. Right. What I realized about every five years, I feel like it's time to reset instead of just keep expanding. And I found that the five-year mark happens to be relatively consistent in my life where you accomplish something and the best way to accomplish your next goal is to actually start over. I think a lot of times in order to create something, you have to tear it all the way down and rebuild it again. When that's harder, it's, it's, it's actually very dangerous and hard because you have to just, it's like destroying something beautiful. Mm -hmm. is to tear something down. It's easier to just reshape it. So people say, well, can we take this shape that we have and just kind of round the edges and chew a little paint and then actually just reshape what we have? Well, certainly you can do that. A lot of people do that because it's faster. It makes more sense. It's familiar. And you're already standing on a foundation you've already built. But you can't put back into a sculpture what's already gone. Right. And so you can only subtract from it. And so that's why sometimes the best way is to tear the whole thing down and start over with a fresh block of granite and build something completely new. And every five years seems to be a reasonable rhythm to which cameras, editing, computers, a lot of those technologies, GPUs, they seem to be on about a five-year rhythm themselves, and they all sort of sync up. I remember the Mythbusters did this great experiment one. It doesn't scale forever, but they did this great experiment where if you take a bunch of metronomes and you put them together, they eventually sync up to each other because the harmonics and the movement, the tiny little movements of them with all these so close together, they might be on different rhythms and then eventually they start ticking all together. It's so fascinating to see that. And it becomes a great analogy because if we're all interconnected in this web of media and entertainment, it means we inevitably sync up with each other, right? Even if we're in different sectors yeah. of the industry, maybe we're in you know, different cities and states and countries and languages, we all sort of sync up. I find that sync up point happens about every five years. That's where everybody gets on the same page. And now we're doing that. And then we get out of phase and everybody develops and then we get back in sync. And the Mythbusters show this great in a, a rerun you can find and they set one off and they make one wrong and it'll eventually agree with all the yeah, other all agree. you know. And, and yeah. there's always an outlier. There's always a few outliers in the media and entertainment business, but eventually we all agree. And the ones that don't agree have to just, they just kind of disappear. We don't know what, ha what happened to those people. I don't remember. They're gone, right? But other ones get, they get in sync or they get acquired or they switch teams and we all get in sync mm -hmm. with each other. So Frame.io is like my fourth reset. And um, so that's been, I've been at this almost 20 years and that's been about the fourth reset. Uh, we'll see how that holds up for the rest of my career. I don't know, but I tend to feel really strongly about these full resets and each one's pretty distinctly different from the other. Right. And that's the other thing. When people ask about what should I, you know, people ask about career advice and business advice and there's no right answer. It's like a forest without a compass. And so sometimes that's just wandering is okay. But if I had to give some advice uh, that, that I could say worked for me, it's that I like the idea of changing 
more than a two degree variation. In other words, if you're working in a particular business and then you and you just sort of say, I want to try something new. A lot of times people just go three degrees that way. Well, three degrees that way, in order for you to be in a completely different space, you have to walk a long way for that tone <laughs> to start to bring you to a completely different ecosystem, right? Well, what would happen if you did a 90 degree pivot or a 180 degree pivot? Now, all of a sudden, every step you take is completely new and it's very, very different. And so I find every five years I get in a little bit of a new space and I want to increase the degrees of variation time after time after time. It doesn't mean you forget or don't apply what you used before, because if you have a central starting point, you apply that to figure out and plot your map and orienteer from a known starting point. So you keep that data with you. So I'm not saying you switch from politics to medicine to education. Those are <laughs> those are pretty bold. They might not have as many overlapping functionalities, right. but if you do 10 degrees, 15, 30, 40, 60 degrees, all of a sudden you're getting a new perspective and you're bringing with you what you knew and it's revealing to you and giving you new skills. And so you're learning. Uh, at Panavision, I learned, I knew nothing about optics. Everything I knew about optics fit in a, in a shot glass. And by the time I left Panavision, I had so much experience just by being in that business to learn about optics. And that became a major component to how I think today. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't have any exposure to the optical world if I didn't work at a company that's built upon the best optics there is. So that's just one example. I didn't know I would discover that. I just took the risk of huh. changing directions. And in changing directions, you discover resources that you wouldn't necessarily have done if you stayed in the same angle of attack cool yeah awesome um how, how to respond to that <laughs> yeah no that's fantastic that's um the yeah definitely resonates i would say uh the reset thing i have observed that you michael cioni know how to do a lot of really cool things <laughs> you know we we uh to prepare for this uh for this show today we we did a little bit of research on you and found all manner of of wonderful things that you have done which is just fantastic i think it's awesome i can certainly relate to that wanting to learn how to do new things, really get inside of the of the issue, the problem, the challenge, and understand how the parts work. Um, understand what you don't understand. Be, uh, and I'm quoting you on this because I've heard you say this, being comfortable with being uncomfortable. I think that's a really interesting uh, way to, to sort of frame that that reset that you're talking about. Well, the idea of being comfortable with being uncomfortable actually comes from my mentor, Leon Silverman. And this is a lesson that he taught me early on because his experience was uh, another phrase that he taught me is that in this industry, if you're really on the cutting edge, you're only the teacher is only one semester ahead of the student. And it's a myth to believe that there are these experts that are light years ahead of everybody. Else. What are you talking about? We're exploring this together, Amen. right? We're all in this mm -hmm. together. They're, the distance between an expert and a freshman are way closer together than I think people would conveniently believe is the case. But that's the opportunity for entrepreneurs and artists and, and, and everyone that wants to jump in this. It's it, regardless of your experience or your age is there's been these major reset opportunities, uh, which is actually one of the best environments for that are ripe for innovation. You, you need to make sure you work in an industry that doesn't have a huge gap between the new people and the experienced people. And I believe media and entertainment is a perfect space for that type of innovative mindset. Awesome. Uh, so let's talk about the cloud a little bit. Um, 
You know, for for those of us who are listening, who you know might be working in a facility where, uh, well, I don't. <laughs> now in 2020 with COVID, I'm not really sure. Uh, who fits this mold? But those of us who might be working in a facility where everything's on-prem, everything's shot really high res, you know, we've got these massive files to move around, and we can't really imagine how the cloud could be used for anything but delivering assets, delivering content, um, delivering those MP4s, uh, maybe maybe some review and approve. I mean, I think many have seen the value for a while in, in an approval workflow. But what about, like, file sizes and the challenges that we think of, you know, I, I've heard Emery talk about this too, the challenges, scale, file size, security, you know, let's talk about some of those challenges. Mm. Yeah, it's a great point. You know, the problem that we all are facing, everyone listening here is going to have this problem. You have a closet or a shelf full of old drives and you don't know what to do with them. They have power supplies that are mismatched. They have different transfer protocols that are extinct or near extinction. And you can't get yourself to delete or throw them away, even though you don't turn them on either. This should be very familiar. And I'm I'm as guilty as, as anyone. Nobody's immune to this problem. But it shows you that there hasn't been a leadership role in how to actually manage data. It came on so quickly, we never figured out what the rules are, right? And so mm -hmm. people are just buying new things and they're not really learning how to do that. And you know, Apple is a good example of how to try to mitigate this a little bit because the number one thing people create in their personal life is photos. And those photos are now syncing to their directories. But photos are small. They're pretty easy to organize. You can tag them with your GPS and things like that. So they, they become reasonably easy. But photos are a very specific case where we actually have some automation that's making the behavior work for long-term archiving. Previous to iCloud syncing and things like that, people were losing photos soon after taking them, right? So the problem is, how do we take the principles of an automated sync system and apply that to video? Because in the video space that we're talking about, we're not talking about gigabytes. We're certainly not talking about megabytes. I wouldn't even argue we're talking about terabytes. We're talking about petabytes and exabytes. And now exabyte is the best word in the world if you're a data center. If, you, if When someone says the word exabyte, they go, oh my gosh, we heard someone say exabyte. Where are they? <laughs> Find that person, right? Because they're looking for customers that know that word. Well, Hollywood yep. is one of those worlds. People in M&E um, have a lot of data and it's going to add up over time. And the ability to just store it on local on-premises disks is absolutely going to go away. So the first step is identifying that there is a need, admitting there's a problem, outline a solution, and start to execute it. The missing component to this is what is the financial model. For example, if you back things up today to LTO, it's going to cost you about $0.06 cents per gigabyte. The LTO tape is going to cost you, let's call it $100 US. So you have $100, $0.06 per gigabyte. A hard drive is going to cost you three times that amount. It's going to be about $0.20 cents per gigabyte, but you can plug it in and use it all the time. The LTO tape is kind of passive. It sits on a shelf. You can't look at it and hear it, but you know it's there. And it's roughly four to six times cheaper, uh, depending on where you store it and how you get your hard drives and things like that. Well, the benefit of both hard drives and LTO is it's a one-time fee. And so you end up just storing it and it's there. The cloud, people might say, I would never pay 20 cents per gigabyte for cloud. You'd be right. You pay 
50 times less than that, except you pay and then you pay again and you pay again and you pay again forever and ever and ever. And so the problem with the cloud model right now is in perpetuity. So we have a solution that will always be available, but you're going to pay for it in a subscription. And the cloud subscription model to the average consumer is a new concept. And to the professional, it's a new concept. We are so used to having hard drives and raids that we love and know and have tested and recommended people. We keep them close to us, right? Those are one-time fees, but they fill up and then they have an end-of-life expectancy. Cloud doesn't have that. LTO can last longer than a hard drive, but you can't look at it. So we have yeah. this triangle of problems, right? Keeps a long time, has to be the right price, has to be active and not passive. And we have to figure out how to you know, make all that work. And there's a triangle you could draw with that and different companies put their token in different corners, right? Some try to be in the center, a little bit of all three. Some are very passive but cheap. Some are very active, but expensive, right? And so we have to learn about that modeling and we need to see the cloud companies start to respond to that word exabyte. When we're talking about megs and gigs and even teras, we're not really dealing with the real problem because these problems are rounding errors. They're small. But when you think about this at scale over the course of a lifetime with material that people shoot that will easily be multiple terabytes per hour, well, now we have an exabyte need, and that could be a need that every person could eventually uh, accumulate. Every human could accumulate petabytes of their own material over time, right? Maybe exabytes in some case. I probably believe that's that's arguable, right? And so sure. these, are, these are the new things about the cloud that's completely new territory. Most people talking cloud aren't having the conversation we are right now because – it's, it's so fresh, right? And so sure. we have to sort of also predict what are the behaviors of filmmakers versus homemakers, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to have different needs for that. And the cloud's going to say, well, if there's more people that are stay-at-home parents, they're going to have a different need. But those people take a lot of photos. But it's just a photo, right? It's going to be hard to catch up to, let's say, Red Code or Airy Raw or Sony Raw, right? So these are the different variables we got to figure out uh, before we can fully see a massive uh, adoption and deployment uh, without any hiccups. We've certainly seen what you're talking about here at Chessa with what we do, deploying uh, storage asset management, uh, media asset management solutions, automation platforms, things like that. And as these platforms start to move more towards cloud subscription-based uh, infrastructures, we're starting to have the same discussions about, uh, you know, you're not purchasing that software as a one-time license anymore. Now it's a, uh, you know, it's, it's a subscription. It's something that you're going to pay for again and again and again. And that model is actually... It's actually good in many ways because that's how the company stays in business and is able to keep developing new features and adding new capabilities and things like that. Um, so in terms of a cloud software deployment, it's really interesting there too because the process of upgrading an on-premise MAM, it, it can be really, really labor-intensive and potentially requiring new hardware and things like that. Cloud MAM deployments, not necessarily. It might be, uh, you know, it might be the developer, the, the software vendor updating in the background and suddenly you have these new features and that's fantastic. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, another factor to what you just described is the idea of capital expenditure, right? It's very CapEx intensive to start a, a lot of storage. So at Chessa, you're going to have to have major checks cut in order to get that process going. The benefit of the cloud 
if I started Light Iron, which I started in 2009 with my brother, uh, if we started it in 2019, well, we would have been able to rely on cloud a lot more because it's easy to get into the cloud because you don't need the high mm. cap expenditures in order to get going, right? And so that's a major difference between these two worlds. And I think that's a, a significant benefit to getting into it now because you don't have to buy massive sand storage in order to be shooting a lot of material. Pay as you go costs more in the long run, but it's way cheaper to get going because now I could have terabytes or petabytes at my disposal without any real expense initially versus the expense of the hardware, the racks, the cooling, the setup, the IT support, all of those things are factored into pretty inexpensive prices to get going. The problem is 10 years later, if we started LightIron 10 years ago on the cloud, well, by today, I can't imagine what that bill would look like if we left everything in the cloud. And so right. that's the part that we're caught up to today. The cloud now is showing its face for the first time as I am going to be your repository for everything, not just proxies, not just review and approval, not just distribution, not just the OTTs getting it to your home. That's a great use for the cloud, but it's going to be the source of all the original camera negative and all the revisions of every effect shot. They go through 40 revisions of an effect shot. You're going to have all 40 copies all in the cloud. And each of those copies is going to be 75 gigs a piece. You know, that actually gets you to one more word that is a terrifying word for Hollywood because we don't have anyone to really lead us through that. It is the word deletion. <laughs> word. And the idea of that just seems like nuts. And it's like, but really, how valuable is the first revision of an effect shot that goes through 39 more revisions? It has no value. But the idea of deleting it seems wrong. It seems like that's malfeasance. It seems it seems like it's it's totally against what we've been taught but that that's because we haven't been taught how to delete mm -hmm. there's no there's no leadership and description and understanding of what that is so we don't know we've all been taught to keep our lawns at least less than six inches or the neighbors are going to start complaining we just learned that right well we haven't been taught through society and social channels like what okay the delete <laughs> and so the answer is nothing <laughs> and that's a bad plan when you're trying to think about the financial impact of keeping stuff that has no value. Amen. Absolutely. Amen. Yeah, I think um, the whole idea of ownership in our society is shifting, right? As we get really used to just paying for access to things and use them as we need them, I think we're seeing that in um, some of the millennials and now some of the uh, what are the Gen Zers coming up behind them, where nobody wants to buy a car anymore, right? Everybody's taking Uber. Like, why would I want a car? But to me, like, why would I ever not have a car? It means I can go wherever I want, whenever I want. So yeah, I think consciousness 
in the human creature is going to shift in around this topic. And that's something we'll see. In and our it lifetime. always has, right? We're not, I don't think each generation's any different than the previous. They, every generation thinks yep. the one behind them is going to ruin the planet. And they're always, <laughs> they're always wrong. Because they all say, this one they all right. say it, right? And so it's just, every generation is just different enough that the behavior starts to shift across the culture. And, and, and of course, regionally, that's going to be different too. Right. Um, in fact, regional differences between people is, probably more significant than generation in, in some ways you look at it. But the point is there are certain things that are ubiquitous, no matter what they are. And storage in the cloud and deleting the right things doesn't matter where you come from or mm -hmm. what color you are or what, how good your movie is, right? It doesn't matter. you you right. got to figure out what to keep and what to lose. And that is not a behavior we have a lot of experience with. Um, and so that's something uh, that we're going to have to, we're going to have to explore. Well, Michael, I nominate you to be the Marie Kondo for the media and entertainment oh. industry. Does that media spark joy for delete you? It. No, yeah. delete yeah. that. You're right. <laughs> That's great. I think a lot of people listening might be thinking, um, well, you know, I just don't know if I, you know, maybe this revision isn't the right one. I don't make that decision. Some producer or colorist or something makes that decision. And what do you see this deletion process as? Is this a cleanup after the, the finished production is done? Is it something more immediate? It's certainly, uh, well, the way I look at it is not binary. So what I should clarify is that deletion and not deletion is not a simple binary decision. It is categoric and segmented. And so what can happen, for example, is when separate types of assets are created, they can be flagged with different types of deletion potentials. Right. So there can be factors, a taxonomy affiliated uh, with mm -hmm. different types of file types. For example, an early form of uh, a rough cut is certainly never going to see the light of day. So its value goes down much quicker. Right. It's very valuable the first week it gets released to the studios or the director. But over the course of multiple cuts, they become completely devalued and easy. Right. Right. And you have the effect shots. And then you have things that go to marketing. Right. You have outtakes. You have behind the scenes. All these things move at a different cadence of what their deletion possibility or need is. And essentially a little alarm clock, let's call it, can go off at different states when the full thing is archived. Let's say we delete nothing. But after it's released, the first comes up and says, well, guess what? Let's just say this is taking up one petabyte of storage. There's 500 gigs that are rough cuts and things that weren't used. And, you know, you, you just start looking at that. Then here's all these things about like um, the audio, the original, uh, you know, outtake stuff that wasn't in the final movie. That's just random audio stuff. It's OK, let's lose that. Right. And let's look at rough cuts that never saw the light of day. In fact, a director would mostly say anything that's not in cut in the movie. I don't want anyone to ever see it ever again. You know, I had a director friend of mine say mm -hmm. when I'm long gone and people celebrate my catalog in the future, I don't want them to look at stuff I cut out of my movies. What a terrible <laughs> thing. Right. And he's right. Right? He's right. And he he's doesn't right. want people going sure. back through Absolutely. that stuff because he's like, I made a decision to eliminate this to the movie. I don't want you going back and seeing what I didn't use. That's right. right. So these can be on a cadence and different ways of marketing departments and delivery departments, exhibition, versioning, formatting. They all need to have different rhythms for what is relevant to them as the time goes by those relevancies start to decay. And so you can delete at different cadences. Therefore, it's not just a binary delete it or keep it. Like you're moving your house and you're like, well, this is the big move. So what boxes are we keeping? What are we deleting? Nobody wants that pressure in terms of content. 
So you keep it all and you slowly delete what makes sense over time based on what category it be it fits into. Yep, right. Policy that sounds driven like a, via the data. Yeah, policy exactly. Yeah, that sounds like a, a fantastic way of going about this potential challenge. So, just sort of expanding on the the use of the cloud and say an editorial workflow. Um, you know, there, there are some challenges we've certainly seen. We at Chess have certainly seen with um, with using the cloud, and I'm just wondering about you know your thoughts on some of these things. You know, we see concerns, and then we also see the little light bulb popping up above heads. Uh, when we talk about things like machine learning and AI, because these things are in places where these machines can access the content now. So now that it's there, why don't we harvest all of this great metadata automatically from this content, right? How can machine learning and artificial intelligence help with the jump to the cloud in terms of evangelism? Yeah, really, the the machine learning has many different facets it's 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 got long arms that go in different directions and because it's so fresh different people have different opinions on that so i can only talk about my approach to ai because i believe that for example whatever the issue may be in the hands of good people is good in the hands of evil people is evil and so i believe that ai falls into that category we can use it for good things for creatives or we can use it for bad things and that depends on who's the architect behind that just like, you know, weapons can be good and they can be bad, right? Fireworks can be good and they can be bad, right? And so we have to look at AI based on who's the person and what is their motive for using this technology. Because when people say AI could replace a lot of creative people's jobs, the answer is absolutely true. Absolutely. Anyone that wants to argue that a computer can't write a script is taking a huge gamble. <laughs> um, it's just like right. what they don't want to happen will just not happen. Well, you could do that. But hope is a bad strategy. So, you know, that's some people's plans. But uh, what's a better strategy is to get involved with the AI so that it is a tool that enhances the creative process instead of eliminates or replaces it. There's some fine lines in there that gets very, very hairy. It gets very political, it gets very dangerous. But from my perspective, our design for AI in our early deployments at Frame.io is based around speeding up tasks that are mundane and non-creative in nature. In other words, the utilitarian things that we have to do thousands of times a day, right? Those are the tasks that AI can really speed up and it can get the editors, for example, which I think a lot of this boils down to, the editing process is a process of search. That's what editing is. There's even memes out there that have like these pie charts and they have like one sliver that says editing and then 98% of the pie is searching for music, right? Like that's <laughs> editors like, yeah, that's what it's like, right? And that's what it is because an editor's, you know, part of the editing process is so much time spent looking for things. Well, what if AI could help speed that up and anticipate what you need and make the tagging so finite, so high resolute that when you just start typing the word cigar, it's like, I know what a cigar looks like. I found everything with the cigars. Well, a cigar plus um, Robert De Niro. Oh, you want those things. Well, cigar plus Robert De Niro plus restaurant. I know what a restaurant looks like. I'm pretty smart. I figured that out, right? And all of a sudden, the editor is now whittled down 2,000 takes to two. And then all of a sudden, the editor is like, when that director is like, hey, don't we have that shot of Robert in that room? It's like, give me two seconds and we're there, mm -hmm. right? 
And that's the type of thing that allows the creative process to keep going instead of the utilitarian tools or processes to hold us back and slow us down, right? That's just one example where the AI being fed into the creatives can be enabling them and not replace it. It's not replacing an editor. It's making an editor edit. Like that sounds good, right? Right. Um, Sure. And so things like that, you can do that with color correction. You can do that with tracking. You can do that with effects. You can do that with locations. You can use the AI of your entire studio binder of how you're going to shoot the movie to do a better job of figuring out what order should we shoot the movie in? Because there's some rules and formulas. What order do you shoot a movie or a TV show in? But AI can examine this thing in ways that humans cannot and actually say, actually, here is a better way to shoot this because I'm able to compute these actors' schedules and flight times and the delays and the possibility. If you have to fly through O'Hare, the chances of being delayed is like 96%. So it's like they, a computer can factor all that in and make sure that you're shooting the movie in the right order based on all these elements, not just what day the location's available, right? Or what you thought it would be, uh, would be a good order. These are all utilitarian things that can speed up the creatives, not eliminate them. And at Frame.io, that's really one of the paramount approaches that we're taking to our machine learning is to really filter it into the existing creatives so that they can be more successful and move quicker uh, and make better informed decisions that the computer can't make, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, yeah, our idea is we're, we're not trying to replace a person. We're trying to make sure the computer is enabling that person to be who they are and show that through better. Well said. Yeah. One thing I wanted to talk to you about was the blog, the Frame.io blog. It's fantastic. Oh, There's yeah. so much really great information there. I can't tell you how many times I've Googled some production term, some post-production term, some media term, and first five or ten hits is an article from Frame.io's blog. So that's fantastic. I mean, you know, we hope at some point that the workflow show becomes close to, <laughs> you know, sh- somehow shines a candle to the audio version of, of that blog. Yeah, so... I think it's great that you found the blog to be helpful. Um, We have a a wonderful writer named Lisa McNamara, who is uh, really spearheading a lot of the content that's on there. And it's also contributed through another partner, Ben Bailey, and then another partner, Jonas Lubers. And essentially what you're dealing with is this idea that being able to get access to information is so critical because everybody's stories are a slightly different perspective. And so we publish a lot on the blog because it incorporates a lot of different perspectives and we try to be very, very deep in it. The Frame Mile blog is actually way deeper than most people think. There's some real nuggets in there, pretty regular. It is not um, a trivial uh, thing. I've been watching the remote workflow series, which has been fabulous. Um, so kudos for that. Yeah. Likewise, we wanted to embody some of the components of that and make it consumable for specifically remote workflow needs that happened throughout uh, the spring and summer of 2020. And so that became really important to us. And when you're going through a new process, the way that we've gone through it, the truth is we ended up discovering things that we wouldn't have done on our own. We wouldn't have discovered these if we didn't go through this process. We're living history right now. I know that's such a corny coined term, but we're actually living history. And, and we, first of all, I like to document things. I find when I look back in my life, I always say, I don't have a photo. I don't remember that very well. I didn't remember what I was feeling that day, but you know, I wish I had better documentation of that 
And so because we're going through COVID right now, part of what we want to do is document it. In that process of documenting it, it said, well, let's tell people what we've learned and share that with the community. And then as we're doing it, we're like, we're learning new things as we go. And it became kind of a meta show. If you actually watch the entire series from wall to wall, we reference ourselves a lot, which this was completely made up on the fly. The show had an outline that was like five seconds long and we just just kind of did it. Mm-hmm. And it was feedback from the community and listening, keeping our ear to the to the railroad tracks and trying to figure out what are the needs? What are we hearing? And what do we think um, we can do to help? And what do we think we can predict from this? The show actually gets more and more organized and more and more intense in some ways over the episodes because we got, we mm-hmm. learned more and then we got more passionate. Our final episode, um, which, which is episode 13, uh, actually is an opportunity for us to really call out our major predictions. And we make some very specific predictions to the community and we make some call outs to key contributors that have to address certain issues if we're going to capitalize on this. See, one of the things that's really interesting about bad situations is that it's easy to get bogged down by the badness, the horrificness of it. And our country and our planet has got a lot of bad situations right now. And the problem is it's easy to let that kind of hold us back. But I believe no matter what the situation is, and you look at history, horrible, horrible things can happen, but good people emerge out of that and they create good out of bad. It happens all the time. And I hate to use that other dumb phrase, you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs. <laughs> People have heard it, you know, and it's sort of like what that phrase is not is the ends justifies the means. It's not. That's not what it's saying. It's saying you created something new and maybe something better because something had to be destroyed. And whether we have to destroy a thought mm-hmm. process, whether we have to destroy our own security, whether we have to destroy our own beliefs or our own biases, whatever we're destroying, we have the opportunity to create. That's what destroying does. We talked about that earlier today, right? This right. creation comes out of destruction. And so Workflow from Home is a series in which we're now trying to say what we've learned, we need to all be responsible. And there's some specific groups that we call out. So watch the show. It's like there's some destruction that needs to happen in order to enable some new creation. And that's really, really important to the story. And this story doesn't end here. In fact, there's so much more of this conversation, we're going to turn it into two episodes because I didn't want to cut out a single minute. So stay tuned for part two, where Michael tells us his story. I don't know about you folks, but Jason and I agree learning about how someone got to where they are now is always one of our favorite parts of the show. And Michael's story is not one you're going to want to miss. Michael Cioni, Global Senior VP of Innovation for Frame.io. Thanks for joining our workflow therapy session today, Michael. Thanks for having me. It was really a great time. Also, thanks to my co-host, Chess's Senior Solutions Architect, Dan Kilberg. Thanks, Jason. And thank you, Michael. And I'm Jason Whetstone, Chess's Senior Workflow Engineer. The Workflow Show is a production of Chesapeake Systems and More Banana Productions. The show is recorded and edited by Ben Kilberg. And here are the CTAs again, folks. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to The Workflow Show. Tell a friend, a coworker, or a client, or a vendor partner about us, and let us know what you think. Send a carrier pigeon to workflowshow at chessa.com or at chessapro. Thanks for listening to The Workflow Show. I'm Jason Winston.